The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. You will be surprised how much your day-to-day gardening helps save our endangered plant species. In this episode, Jennifer Seska is determined to make native plants regular. That involves how to wake up native plants already on your land. She explains why connecting people and grasses is essential and why grasslands are so important. You'll also find out why weaving as much diversity into your garden will help create more resilience in the greater habitat. Jennifer Suska is an accredited public service and outreach faculty at the University of Georgia and has served since 1995 as conservation coordinator in the Science and Conservation Program of the University of the State Botanical Gardens of Georgia in Athens. She received her master's at UGA in horticulture with an emphasis on plant conservation. Her specialty is creating project-driven professional networks and facilitating projects for endangered species recovery. She has consulted with 14 states in developing their own conservation network. Jennifer serves as project manager for the Georgia Plant Conservation Alliance, coordinating over 60 organizations contributing recovery actions to 105 critical imperil plant species in Georgia. This is episode 79, How Your Garden Supports Plant Conservation with Jennifer Seska. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Jennifer, you've been asked to advise on a landscape project for a new home located on two acres of cleared pine forest. If any significant topsoil exists, it has been lost in the construction process. What are your first thoughts? First thought, thinking about land use history always, if that soil had been broken, what would be ideal would be to get even a tiny prescribed fire on that site and see if we couldn't wake up some seeds of some native plants that might be there. If we can't do that, having an open slate with lots of sun is such a golden opportunity to pop in all kinds of wonderful native wildflowers and grasses and shrubs. My next question to them would be, are they in the Piedmont Mountains or are they in the coastal plain? It would be Piedmont and it's in West Georgia. In the Piedmont, we would suggest working with plugs instead of trying to direct seed. Planting small plugs just gives us a big lean on life, a big head start with gardening in our Piedmont soils, our mountain soils. It's tough gardening in those red clays. Plants can be direct seeded. They will spread by seed, but it sure would be nice to get plants going faster with plugs. I would say you wouldn't even need to plug the whole place, but to plug in pockets of fives and sevens and let them spread through time, letting them go to seed. And I would plant clumps of colors and then pop in blueberries and plop in, pop in native azaleas. 
then build in anything that's lovely and inspirational to the landowner. Except, Craig, for anything that might be brutish, a bully, an invasive species. We just don't have time. We don't have time to manage those suckers. Kind of things that take care of themselves. We want uh, to invite friends over to our home that are, you know, lovely guests, not not the percussively loud banging on the drum for yes, 10 yes. hours guests. <laughs> what is the most important thing we should know about planning a garden or a landscape? I would ask everybody, no matter what kind of garden they have, if it's a formal garden, it's an informal garden. If it's a potted patio garden, it's a mailbox garden to pop in one or two native plants from Georgia because wildlife needs support from those native plants and insects that love those native plants feed so many critters. Science has shown that weaving native plants throughout the landscape does help wildlife. I have native plants and non-native plants in my home garden, but just to pop a few natives in for the wildlife. You've already given us a few examples of plants that will work in our Piedmont area or in Georgia. What are some of the heavy hitter plants for the garden that you'd suggest? I like that word, Craig, heavy hitter plants. If someone could plant just one heavy hitter plant, it would be a mountain mint. And you really can't go wrong planting any of the species, but Pycnanthemum is the genus, P-Y-C, Pycnanthemum. There are many species of mountain mint, and they are great performers. We had a volunteer who does amazing photography, take pictures of insects visiting a mountain mint planted in our meadow. And he worked with scientists on campus, and they identified 51 different species of beneficial insects in 30 minutes. Wow. Those plants are just humming with diversity. Little bees, butterflies, all the things. So that, if you could plant one thing, plant a mountain mint. Well, what about a second choice? I would ask everyone to plant something for the monarch butterflies. So nectaring for monarch butterflies, but also for reproduction. So butterfly weed, or as Doug Tallamy calls it now, monarch's delight, renaming it. Um, <laughs> so a butterfly weed or a swamp milkweed is another great performer. And it doesn't have to have wet areas, uh, swamp m- milkweed. Those are great host plants for monarch caterpillars. Since Georgia is really important for the monarch's migration, planting something for them to nectar on, an aster, a small goldenrod, you cannot go wrong. They will love and appreciate those plants. A native sunflower, anything from those genera, those groups of plants, you're going to do great on behalf of all kinds of butterflies, but particularly the monarchs that need help. Has anybody compiled a list of plant material that's native that you can use in your landscape and then how it functions in the landscape? Because that seems to be always my challenge is is actually finding that material that's pulled together into one spot. Is that available anywhere that you're aware of? State Botanical Garden of Georgia on our website has the Connect to Protect tab. Under conservation, look for Connect to Protect. And on the right margin, there's a manual about gardening to connect plants with wildlife. There are recommended species. There's recommended garden designs in that literature. Also, the Georgia Native Plant Society, their website, their social media pages have amazing details about the native plants they recommend for gardens and the insects and birds that are associated with those. Between those two, you're going to get quickly at the right species to plant, the most heavy hitting. Um, Also, our native plant nurseries in Georgia, they are full of amazing experts and they are a great resource. So supporting local native plant nurseries, we have a list of 
native plant nurseries on our state botanical garden website. They're a great resource for expertise for planting, and it's also wonderful to support the green industry in Georgia because they are working hard to get high-quality plants that happen to be native into people's hands. You're also welcoming other non-native plants. There seems to always be a controversy between it's got to be totally native or you can't have it in your garden. What are your thoughts? It's a good point. We've learned through colleagues during the drought years, what was it, in the late 90s, Professor Bodhi Panisi has done native plant gardens. She's at UGA Tifton. And she noticed that the native plants did very well through the drought. A plant that's not native, a ground cover verbena, purple verbena, it's not native, but it's not invasive. It's a well-behaved guest in gardens, but boy, did it keep flowering through that drought. Sure did kick in nicely for butterflies and bees during that drought. That plant was so drought tolerant, it was able in the coastal plain to keep flowering. Yes, having non-native plants, as long as they're not invasive, and when I say invasive, I mean a big I, capital I, invasive. I will say that there's more and more research going into the ecological benefits of native plants, being that they're pollinator services, documenting pollinator services. Mount Cuba Gardens is one of the leaders in this. They tested all kinds of flocks and all kinds of flocks cultivars, and they looked at them for size and shape and performance and bloom and drought tolerance and pest resistance, but they also looked at nectar and then the kind of nectar, was it high in micronutrients for butterflies? And this is not something I ever thought through. They found and identified flocks that has copious amounts of nectar, nectar high in micronutrients, which are good for butterflies. So the comparison is that you may have butterfly bush, but that's like giving your kids Mountain Dew every day. <laughs> Maybe we ought not give our kids Mountain Dew every day, but these other native plants have high quality nectar and other benefits and micronutrients that science is just trying to get their heads around to understand we see this when we see the diversity of insects visiting our native plants, but now we're getting more and more evidence about what's going on there, how those native plants service pollinators, service beneficial insects. I have a butterfly bush in my garden. I have one left. It's starting to spread and I've got my eyebrow lifted looking at it because if it starts to spread obnoxiously and I've heard some concerns from other states, it's going to have to go. I hear that they spread. I just never seen that in my garden. I'm wondering, maybe I'm just not buying the ones. <laughs> is it in Georgia? Does it tend to be a problem? You know, I didn't see it either. The first place that I've seen it is in the North Georgia mountains. It's after a fire. We are seeing butterfly bush pop up on ravines, maybe four or five plants. And they're coming from, I guess, local communities. I cannot fathom how those seeds got over there, but on a bird's foot or something on a cliffside. Mm -hmm. And you can't see them until they flower. Maybe it's not quite a cliff, it's just a very steep bank near the Tulula River. Mm -hmm. So when plants start escaping into natural air, especially far afield, and then have great success, we get our eyebrows up at them, and that might be something to watch for. Okay. I have a colleague, Linda Chafin, she's a, a field botanist, she's an author of a few books, and she's observing a pattern. It's like, after 10 years of a shrub being in gardens in Georgia, they seem to start to spread. It's like, they'll be a good guest for 10 years, and then we'll start observing a problem, just to keep a watchful eye. How is drought affecting the native flora in Georgia? Are we in our second drought this year? Seems like we had a drought in late spring, and mm -hmm. then... I know we get a fall drought every year, but this seems to be particularly intense. We are seeing shrubs hang dog in their ears, their leaves, with this drought in natural areas. 
I think that they're going to go dormant quickly, which means, too, that maybe seed production this year is going to be tough. We'll see. We've observed some plants like Georgia Aster seems to be waiting to bloom. They have buds, but they are slowly opening those buds. Usually they're wide open this time of year. Maybe they're waiting on a rain. And then maybe if we get a good series of rains, we'll still get seed production. We're curious about seed production because that impacts next year's crop of wildflowers and grasses that our partners produce for gardening and restorations. Yeah, I think it's going to be a crunchy, dormant fall Yeah, yeah. unless we get rain soon. Hoping for Thursday. It gives you hopes and you watch that long-term forecast. I had great hopes in the hurricane, but right. you know, I, don't, I know a lot of people it was bad for them, but I was hoping to get some Same. rain out of it. Same. Safety for yeah, all yeah. and some rain would have been nice. Most garden sites in our area aren't really what I perceive as soil-friendly to native plants. Most of it, it's hard-packed subsoil left over from a construction process. And how do you overcome that challenge? Yes, I think our soils are our biggest challenge for gardening. And then invasive pressures. We just go up. We used to till. When I was in graduate school at UGA Department of Horticulture, we were taught all the things to prepare soil and amend soil. And now we've pulled back off of tilling as we've learned more about soil, the world of critters that are living in the soil, the microbiology. We don't want to disrupt all that. So I would say even with a screwdriver or some kind of metal stake, walk around and poke holes in your soil and then bring in some hardy soil amendment and just go up composted pine bark, some kind of other compost, maybe not so much peat because that'll break down so fast. Edge it with whatever you've got, rocks, boards, maybe just a big pile, let it settle, let it rain on it, let water it in, let it settle, and then start planting in that. Let the roots go deep. They'll get down in there, but that raised layer will help them establish with their fine roots. And then a lot of these native plants, especially sun-loving native plants, they have roots that are three, four, five, ten feet deep. Once they get established, they'll be nice and drought tolerant, but they're going to need a little time to get started. And they're going to need a little help to get started with that raised bed situation. So punch holes in it, and you're talking about a screwdriver, but would a bub planter or even a six-inch auger, is that overkill? No, that's a great idea. I have a a lantern stake I walk around. (laughs) I look like an odd shepherd, I think, walking around (laughs) and sort of doing an odd dance, just stab holes in my garden, just bring a little air down in there little water down in there and then amend up. After you've built up, you're poking it? Right. We used to try to till down or double dig two feet and break it all up. It seems best not to do that anymore. Sounds less laborious too. (laughs) Right. I mean, I think about the hours and days of tilling and double digging. Is there a favorable intersection of gardening and plant conservation? I think there's an essential intersection. I think they're woven. We didn't realize... Gosh, I think back starting my career, it was like plant conservation will be driven by the scientists and they will do the things, people who are trained in genetics and in special propagation techniques, they will do the research to figure out how to make these plants thrive in the wild. And that's true. We absolutely need those experts. I consider myself in the team of experts that do that work and that is essential. But what we've realized in the last 25 years is we cannot do it alone. We need to support the whole system. We've put a lot of time, we are our partners in the Georgia Plant Conservation Alliance, to conserve the critically imperiled plant species. And we'll plant them out in natural areas. But if there are not pollinators in the region, in the county, within a mile, if those pollinators aren't in the environment or not supported through their life history, 
with other nectaring plants or reproductive plants or places that they may reproduce, like in the leaf litter under trees. And then all our work conserving imperiled plants is for naught. We are reaching our hands across the table to gardeners and we're saying, we need your help. Please plant some natives in your garden because that will support wildlife, that will support pollinators, and that's going to help our critically imperiled plants survive better in the wild. And, and there are imperiled plants in every county of Georgia. Possibly going extinct. Science has noted that from the beginning. So when early European botanists came over and started tracking plants and observing plants, there were even species that were winking out in those days, like Franklinia. It's a famous example of a plant that survived because it was in gardens, but it was winking out in the wild. I would say First Nations knew of the rare plants and the common plants, and they were good stewards of the environment, the way they applied fire to keep habitats open. They were very much managing lands on behalf of biodiversity for their success as communities, but for success of the wildlife. Science is catching up to their knowledge, has been for the last many years. Botanists in the state of Georgia have been tracking biodiversity, botanists through the universities, botanists through the Department of Natural Resources, cataloging how species are spread across the state and noticing when species are rare or then suddenly declining. We've had even in my watch in my career species that have gone into sudden decline. Things that you think are common, like, oh, that's just red bay. We've always had red bay. But then the red bay wilt comes out of the Port of Savannah as an accident and spreads through the mouth of beetles. Something that's common is suddenly very rare and struggling. Where's the value in saving the plants? I know they're rare. I know plant geeks love them. But where's the value to us as a greater population, maybe the non-plant geek population? Right? The big why. Why all the effort? One answer is because it exists. It's here. It's part of our responsibility. And probably humans had some impact on why it's declining. And we can mostly study and figure those things out about why something is declining. Truth be told, Georgia is blessed with incredible biodiversity. Diversity in altitudes, soils, geology, climate. Because of that, we have amazing plant diversity, amazing diversity of plant communities, and then we have amazing birds, bees, butterflies, box turtles, all the things. We know through science, we know through observations, how important native plants are for all that wildlife. Common plants, common grasslands, roadside plants, how essential those lost habitats, those lost prairies are in Georgia. So without plant biodiversity, we lose wildlife biodiversity. And we never know. We talk about keystone species. Smooth coneflower could be an example of a keystone species. But really, it's the weaving as much diversity as we can get to create resilience in the habitat. So there are options. The monarch butterflies flying through and, oh, Georgia asters having a bad year. They need to nectar on their flight south. What are they going to nectar on? Well, that's okay. We've got other options. We've got native sunflowers. We've got native other asters. We've got native goldenrods. We've got beautiful plants in reserve. With biodiversity comes resilience. And with the pressures the planet's facing, we want all kinds of creative options for droughts, for seasonal droughts even, that the habitats have resilience of other species that could bloom or genetics that a plant can bloom earlier or later so that we can support wildlife so that we have birdsong in our mornings and evenings. Now, would you explain your mission at the Georgia Botanical Garden? Yes. If I said it the fastest way, it would be to make native plants regular. People just know native plants of Georgia. They're part of their lives. Of course, I know what a beauty berry is. Of course, I know sweet shrub. I can name two species of native sunflower. What are you talking about? 
to make them regular. But as the State Botanical Garden of Georgia and in service to the state of Georgia, we're very passionate about icons of Georgia, native plants, native birds, native bees, native butterflies. But we also celebrate other plants and other diversity that you can have in your garden as long as, again, it's not the big eye invasive. And I would say our mission is to keep the common plants common and known, the invasive plants off, and the imperiled plants here, and that they don't wink out on our watch. We have lots of programs, I guess seven different initiatives that work up that mountain of conservation. They're like trails that are all going up the same mountain. The same goals for conservation of biodiversity, but just reaching it in different ways, reaching it through science or reaching it through community action, reaching it through children's education. What are the biggest challenges you're facing? One of the biggest challenges is people's knowledge and regard for grasslands in Georgia. Grasslands were once a big portion of our state in all parts of Georgia. In the coastal plain, I think most of us know this, the longleaf pine habitat and the understory diversity. We grit grasslands in the Piedmont and grasslands in the mountains. And sometimes these grasslands have trees. They just have widely spaced trees. A lot of our grassland species eke out their existence on roadsides and rights of way because that's where they can get sun. The canopies are too closed in the forest. Maybe we ought not be walking across crunchy leaf litter in all seasons in our Georgia forest or crunchy pine needles. Maybe we ought be walking through wildflowers and grasses. So we need more sunlight. The problem is that a lot of people view unmowed roadsides as ugly or not cared for, a sign that nobody's caring for that land because it's not high and tight. We work with partners in the Georgia Department of Transportation, county governments, Georgia Power and other EMCs to keep roadsides and rights-of-way unmowed except for the safety strip, but that back slope can harbor a lot of diversity. And a lot of rare plants exist on roadsides, like we were saying, because that's one of the few sun-loving spots they can find. And working with our Georgia Department of Transportation partners, they say they'll get calls where people say, you need to come mow our roads. This is looking messy. How do we get people to see those grasses and wildflowers as beautiful? I think the wildflowers are a quick sell because they're shiny and colorful, but cool season grasses and warm season grasses as beautiful, waving in the breeze. We need to create connections between people and those grasses again. So that's something we're working really hard to do with partners, is helping people to see, come walk with me, come see this. This is beautiful. Come touch this grass. I think if we have a chance to walk with somebody or if we have a chance to give a presentation, we can help people see. And they're, oh, of course, I get it. That's beautiful. How can we answer this question with a tagline instead of a paragraph? That's one thing that's particularly important is to get people to see and value unmowed areas as beautiful. I have a major power line crossing close to my house. I've noticed instead of coming through and mowing it every year, now it seems like they go through and spray it. Right now the goldenrod's blooming and there's other things that are blooming and grasses are in there. And, but the pine trees are dying because I guess they herbicided it, what I figure. How do you see that changing? And is all herbicide really a threat? Where are we on that? That's a great question, Craig. We hold that herbicide, the very applied, very prescribed use, spot spraying herbicide is essential for management because we have such time pressures. 
We are at a point in Georgia in the southeast that if we don't get more grasslands and diverse grasslands on our roadsides, rights of way, homes, farm sides, we will lose butterfly, bee, and bird species in the next 25 years. Never before have we had in the south this kind of time pressure for conservation. Very prescribed spot spraying, knowing your botany and what you're spraying. This is a pine and or power line. I'm going to need to spray this back. This is a baptisia. It looks like a shrub, but it's not ever going to get up in those power lines. We don't need to spray that. Sumacs, we don't need to spray those. Blueberries, azaleas. So there is a lot of work within the EMCs and GDOT to train up their crews on their botany. Something the State Botanical Garden is really proud to be in support of and other partners as well. This botanical education, it will save companies money by spot spraying. More and more management crews are putting rights of way on rotation. So there's mow years and there's spot spray years. They don't have to keep them mowed tightly and that is also gonna save them resources and money and time in the habitats, touches on the lands, management touches. If we don't manage for our lands, if we don't manage with prescribed herbicide, we will lose the battle against invasives. The pressure of invasive plants in the southeast is intense and it's growing. Johnson grass has to be managed or we will have a monoculture. We will have roadsides of nothing but Johnson grass if we let it get ahead. Kogan grass is a classic example. You must treat it or it will eat up the land. There are ways to apply herbicides that are very effective and very prescribed. And as a conservation botanist, we use herbicides routinely in our work for native plant restoration, for prairie restoration, roadsides, gardening, and also in our work with imperiled plant species because we just haven't got the time to keep the invasive plants back in other ways. I guess that was the function of fire, and maybe still is, uh, of keeping those species back and keeping the grasslands. Is that a fair statement? That's a perfectly accurate statement, Craig. Yes, fire is just the most wonderful medicine for the land. I love that phrase. I borrow that phrase from prescribed fire professionals. Fire does so many things, releasing seed banks, relieving thatch under the grasses so that wildflowers can direct seed. We've learned so much with our partners about prescribed fire in the many different seasons to prevent catastrophic fires like we've seen out west. Our fire partners here in in Georgia in the south are doing the same things. They're getting ahead of the duff so they prevent catastrophic fires, but it also is such a great tool for keeping back many invasives and encouraging native plants to thrive. One of the best ways to wake up native plants is to burn a habitat. And there's so many partners that can help a landowner get at this, even with a small micro burn, we call them. 20 feet by 20 feet. Georgia Forestry Commission and other partners can help landowners with these. So where would be your first call? To the Georgia Forestry Commission? Yes, to the my local Georgia Forestry Commission. If I'm a private homeowner, landowner, I would call my local county office. If you're not sure who to call, you can always, always, always start with UGA's extension. They will line you up with all the partners, including your local prescribed fire partners. And then there's consultants and other folks too. Other, there's lots of support for prescribed fire and crews that can execute beautifully prescribed fires. It is the best medicine. And if we can't burn for some reason, then we have to mimic. And that's more resources. That's more touches on the land, but it's mowing and it's treating woodies and 
other ways. I will say fire might not be able to call some grasses that are invasive. So you, if I think about Cohen grass or miscanthus grass, silver plume grass, they burn at such levels it can make trees above them catch fire. Do you need to treat them with herbicide? Those are invasive, capital I, invasive species that are particularly bad bullies. How about telling us a success story of rescuing or saving a rare plant? I got a great story. Yeah. And it's not just my story. It's a story of partners. It's the Georgia Plant Conservation Alliance. These are organizations that work together in Georgia, just bring together whatever resources and talents they have on behalf of critically rare plants in their habitats. A great Georgia success story is dwarf sumac. It's Rus Michoei. Looks like a sumac you might know, but it is. It's dwarf and it's hairy and it's fuzzy and it's adorable. It's maybe, maybe three feet tall. When biologists got involved, maybe starting 50 years ago, there were two populations left in Georgia. Populations were male and female, and they were separated by hundreds of miles. And wow, it's hard for a bee to get between those male plants and those female plants that were separated. Partners at the Atlanta Botanical Garden, partners at Department of Natural Resources, partners at State Botanical Garden, Georgia Southern Botanic Garden, Georgia Southern University, many partners working on behalf of this dwarf sumac, bringing it into cultivation. We, we pot up and have little snippets of males and females, but they just sit there. They don't flower at the same time. They don't reproduce. If I'm looking at it, I'm using a very technical conservation biology term. I'm looking at I'm saying they're forlorn. <laughs> they are forlorn. They are, this is a failure to thrive. In plant conservation, we tend to not mix populations. We're trying to keep the genetics of each population moving forward through time. Jenny Cruz Sanders, who was at the time at the Atlanta Botanical Garden, she's now the director of State Botanical Garden, and Dr. Mincy Moffitt, one of the state botanists of the Department of Natural Resources, he's now with Fish and Wildlife. They're like, we are losing this plant. We were down to four male plants and a handful of female plants. We're dwindling, even in cultivation. They said, we've got to bring them together in the wild. So on Valentine Day, they planted the males and the females on some state property, sat for a while, but within a year, those males took off. So we went from four males. Now there are tens of thousands of stems 10 years later. Maybe they needed privacy. I don't know, but they needed to be in the wild. So there are things that we don't understand. There's things that as, as much as we scientifically tinker with these species and try to learn everything about their life history, there's things we don't understand. So many species need to be in natural areas to survive and thrive. But now in this site, they are reproducing and they are making baby dwarf sumacs. And that is a great success story because we came very close to losing that species in Georgia. When I hear sumac, I think about in Boy Scouts making tea with it or some kind of drink. <laughs> yeah, people still do that. There's so few seeds, I don't think I could do it with a dwarf sumac. But maybe someday there'll be ridiculous amounts of seeds and we can have a sumac tea. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned connect to protect several times. Would you like to expand on that some more? Yes, please and thank you. Connect to Protect is an idea that we borrowed from our friends at Fairchild Tropical Garden, and they were planting gardens to connect rare plant habitat across the lower peninsula of Florida, a rare plant habitat, the Pine Barrens. We modeled our program in Georgia off of that in that we can connect to protect for wildlife. So weaving native plants of Georgia 
into people's homes, into people's lives. Mentioning before, these could be formal gardens, these could be casual gardens, these could be mailbox gardens, these could be plants that live in pots, these could be plants on a balcony. But they're native plants that are heavy hitter supporting native insects and they create connectivity for insects so that they can thrive among native plant sites throughout urban areas, throughout suburban areas, throughout farmlands and roadsides, farm edges. The idea is to connect to protect. And if we all plant a few of these heavy hitting native plants, we're gonna have great effect on supporting our wildlife in Georgia, all kinds of wildlife, our bats that eat mosquitoes, our birds, all kinds of things that need wildflowers that have insects so that these animals can live. I know our conversation has been primarily about Georgia, but is there a national movement or how would you connect or find out resources for your rare plants in your state? Because we have listeners from all over the country and actually all over the world. So is there a source for that? Yes, I'm a big fan of botanical gardens, clearly, but as museums of living collections that teach, every state's botanical garden is going to have resources. Every nature center, nature centers, they feature animals, but they know and they teach native plants as well. I would say also the native plant societies in every state and throughout native plant societies are wonderful resources for learning about plants and also where to find ethical sources of native plants. In Georgia, we have a strong extension program, and other states have extension too, and they are an amazing source too for how to garden with native plants. Extension offices, plant societies, botanical societies, garden clubs, university horticulture departments. At the national level, there is the National Wildlife Federation. They have wonderful outreach on their website. Also, the U.S. Forest Service has wonderful, again, outreach on their website about native plants and which native plants are important and why and supporting pollinators. The pollinators have done so much to raise awareness for native plants. We've been holding onto those little butterfly legs so hard (laughs) (laughs) as conservation biologists. And we're grateful to the bees and the butterflies for getting people's attention. There are great resources, too, on the internet. And there's also the Center for Plant Conservation. If people are curious about the recovery work of rare plants throughout North America, it's a powerful organization doing beautiful work, and they have great videos in their Rare Plant Academy. People can watch videos and hear about the great works and find out ways to contribute because all groups, all groups are looking for volunteers to help with projects. What else would you like for our listeners to know? One thing that I would say that I would like people to hear is that conservation can be a heavy lift. Conservation can feel like we're losing the battle, but I hold great hope. It's doable. This is doable. And especially in the next 20 years, the wonderful, simple, beautiful act of gardening, that gardening can be so important to conservation. How great is that? Georgia, the Southeast, the United States, the world is full of gardeners. So let's get busy, y'all. Let's plant some plants. And wow, it's going to have an impact. It's going to help. That has to ring out as hope and inspiration for all of us. Gardening is so good for us. And it's so much fun. And it's so beautiful. And you can pick a posy for your friend. And then you happen to be doing ecologically wonderful things. I just want to shout that out and celebrate it. Conservation can be spooky. It can be a heavy lift. But it remains so much hope and so much amazing energy going into it from science and from home gardeners and 
farmers all. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? You know, something that I've learned as a gardener is to loosen up on cutting back plants. When I went through school at University of Georgia Department of Horticulture, we kept it high and tight. A plant starts to fade and it's flowering, and we would start cutting back those stems and keep things very tidy. And now we're learning that we can ease up on that, and especially as the plants go into their winter dormancy. I always cut back those dormant stems of my perennials because I wanted, you know, a clean winter interest garden. But now maybe I don't cut back all of them. If I have a stand of purple coneflowers or a pocket of native sunflowers or my Joe Pie weed, I leave some of those stems vertical or if they're really hanging into the paths so we keep really clean paths, we being me and my husband, my son here in our Gainesville garden. But if I'm going to cut those stems, I can't tell you, I used to send them through the chipper, I would compost them, and now they're saying, just put them in a little pile in the back space of your garden because there are baby bees in those stems. A friend of ours, Lauren Muller, who is a botanist in South Carolina, taught us about waddling. Do you know about waddling? This is not a walk. This this is a... We're talking about little mini a fences? A little fence? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. So I have a very humble waddle <laughs> in my garden. It does not look like the beautiful woven things you see in other countries of other parts of the world. I have parallel sticks, bamboo stakes sticking out of the ground. And then I lay my cut stems between and create this little straw fence in the back part of my garden underneath my turkey fig. That is an interesting and important lesson. And I've seen more signs that read, my garden is sleeping. It's intentionally not cut yet. Leaving those stems through the fall, the winter, until early spring, or putting them in a pile or in a wattle fence. My husband and I started doing that, I think, two years ago, and we've seen such a difference in the native bees in our garden. And a friend of ours, Julie Folkley of the Folkley Garden Company, taught us that. And she said that she was astounded by how many native bees she had just by keeping her stems in a pile in her back garden. And she has a full native plant garden. That act of not composting the cut stems increased the bees in her garden. Well, now I don't feel so bad about the big brush pile on the backside of my garden. See? You're doing good conservation work. (laughs) I didn't even know it. (laughs) You didn't even know it. It's perfect. What garden myth would you like to smash? Oh, oh, that's a, oh. There you go. Thank you for that one, Craig. (laughs) I would like to smash. I will manage that invasive plant in my garden. I like it, and I will always keep it tame. Mmm. Mm, no, no, I'm, I'm calling it. I'm going to say no. No, you won't. I thought I would. No. I loved wisteria as a kid. Chinese wisteria. Loved it. Loved it. Can't be friends anymore. <laughs> I, I'll pull the pods off. I'll keep it trimmed. No. Birds are going to get at it. Can't have it. Sorry. We're done. English ivy. I had it in my wedding. It was the table decoration in my wedding because it's a symbol of long-lived connections. All right. I propagated English ivy myself and put it in my home garden as a ground cover. Full confession. Uh Uh-uh. Not anymore. Can't be friends. Can't let it go up a tree and go to seed. (sighs) I mean, gardening with an invasive is just like playing with some bad chemistry chemical in a lab or something. I don't know. We're playing with some atomic chemical. It's plutonium. I don't know. There's a metaphor in there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) 
We just can't be friends with these invasives. Why, why, your time is beautiful. Don't use your time to manage an invasive. Go plant a thousand other different fabulous things. What's your earliest garden memory? Oh, I love that question. I was raised by a gardener. My mom is a fantastic gardener. And I have vivid memories of a wood fence in our garden in Grand Prairie, Texas. And she had planted sunflowers all along the fence. And I remember collecting seeds. She was surprised I remembered because apparently I was a little tyke. She had petunias in her front garden. I remember walking, I guess, with my first grade class through a prairie out behind the elementary school and seeing a blue bonnet, a Texas blue bonnet. Now, that wasn't a garden. We all stopped. We're like, oh, wait, don't step on that. If you step on it, they'll put you in jail. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because Texas takes their wildflowers very seriously. I don't know that that law is on the books, but it might as well be because we held it true to our first grade hearts. And we all love that blue bonnet. There was just one, but we were very protective of it, even as first graders. <laughs> Why did you decide to pursue the plant conservation profession? Oh, my goodness gracious. I went through the most amazing crossroads. But looking back, I have always, always, always loved wildflowers. Always sought them, bouquets of them. Even in college, going and picking a fall-blooming bouquet. So I was a marine biology major at Florida State. I was a big shot synchronized swimmer also. And I was gonna combine those talents and go do amazing things in the marine biology world. Took field botany with Dr. Lauren Anderson at Florida State my last semester in school. And I loved it. I loved going out into the wild. We were actually going to a lot of roadsides and looking at these beautiful wildflowers, which I'd driven by for years and years and years, but I loved being able to call them by name. It's like you create a friendship with something, right? It's like the difference between your hey neighbor, like, hey neighbor, hey, how y'all doing? Doing fine, all right, y'all take care. Or if your neighbor's like, hey Craig, how's it going, how are the boys? How did those grapes do this year? You know, that's a different relationship when you call somebody by name. And I felt that immediately in that field botany class. And I had an offer to go work in SeaWorld, and I had an offer to go to graduate school, and I was just really drawn to plants. I got philosophical and said, conservation is important to my heart. I want to be in service in some way. I want to do something. So some kind of applied science. I thought if I work with plants and can help protect plants and plant communities, then I can help conserve animals too. Yes, I work with plants because I'm in love with them, and I can geek out on a plant in a heartbeat. But I'm also very tender about all the critters that are associated. That's why I work with plants for the whole system. But I do tend to geek out on those plants and those flowers and call them by name. <laughs> do you have a funny plant story or conservation story you can tell us? Oh, well, I could poke at some of my botanical mentors, so... Beware the botanical mentors of the past. They were all great teachers, of course, and had great heart. And there are lots of ways to learn a plant. You can look at it. You can smell it. You can hold it. Feel it. Feel the hairs on those stems. You can also taste it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I tend to be a little wary of tasting plants in the wild. 
because of a wonderful experience with toothache grass, Tinium. It's a genus in the coastal plain. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous grass. It looks like somebody threw confetti in the air and it froze. It's just all these little squiggles on the ends of stems. It's truly beautiful. Toothache grass. It also has something in its fruit that will numb your mouth. Thus the name. And it was, in fact, used for dentistry. There's many ways to learn a plant. So here, Jennifer, taste this. I'm like, oh, is it minty? What is this? Chew, 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 chew. <laughs> Why am I drooling? <laughs> Why am, what is wrong with my mouth? What have you done? What have you done to my mouth? You know, you can imagine, right? Yeah. And all the laughter. I guess these are rites of passage. Yeah. You ever question a tree that's in fruit and they think you should know it and they hand it to you. I'm like, Jennifer, you ought to know that that's a persimmon. But here, taste this fruit and it's a tart persimmon. That'll yeah. learn you. <laughs> You should have known persimmon. Okay, I know it now. Thank you. I may never be able to smile again after this pucker. <laughs> Who in your professional career has been your biggest influencer? Oh, I've had so many amazing mentors. I had mentors at the national level at the Center for Plant Conservation, like Kay Havens. I had mentors like Cindy Wentworth. She was the botanist ecologist of the Forest Service here in Georgia. She taught me how to do field botany. She taught me how to do wayfinding with maps, topo maps, compass. She taught me how to monitor a rare plant population. These were things that I didn't learn in school, field, field skills that I didn't learn in school that I learned from Cindy Wentworth. I just volunteered with her. How can I help? Teach me all, all you can. Ron Dieterman at the Atlanta Botanical Garden, an amazing horticulturist. He's taught generations of us the intelligent tinkering of seeds and how to get them to wake up. Tom Patrick, state botanist, he's since passed away. Many of us still feeling that and working hard to keep lifting his work forward. Just a gentle teacher who would sing the Latin names. He was alerting us that there was a cool plant. He's like, Symphiotricum Georgianum. <laughs> we would come over. <laughs> But he would show me a thousand times why that's Georgia Aster and not another Aster. And he would patiently show me again and again. A, just a sweet, gifted teacher. And it, he didn't just know the plants, but he knew the landowners. And he had friendships with landowners and professionals in all the trades all over the state. He knew all the counties by heart, all the best restaurants on all the squares of all the county seats. <laughs> And what a great mentor to teach us that, yes, you got to know your botany, you got to know your plants, but you got to know people. Yeah. You got to engage people. People have to care and know. Some of our best botanists in the state are self taught botanists, and they are remarkable. We need them. So, people and plants. And that was from Tom, Tom Patrick. Mm. What is your most valuable garden mistake? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've got so many. It's so funny. Okay, so early days. My husband and I moved into this little historic home in Gainesville, Georgia, downtown. Oh, the grass had been parked on for years for a makeshift driveway. You could see little gravelly bits. And I think there had been cement there once upon a time, but this is a 1945 house. We had this opportunity to put in a garden, this the side yard. So what did we do? 
We tilled the heck out of it. We tilled for days. We rented a giant, the biggest tilling machine we could get, and we tilled and we tilled and we tilled, which may have been a good thing since it had been driven on. Okay, maybe, maybe. But it was clay, right? And what did we add? Uh, Jennifer had been trained up in the coastal plain. I was like, let's add sand. Oh. So we added sand to the clay. Mm-hmm, Craig, I see you shaking your head. Brick. <laughs> it rained. Brick, brick. Yes, we made brick. It was so sad. So when our, we started with a mailbox garden and we popped in just happy little things, marigolds and such, to greet us at the mailbox. Those poor things were growing in brick. So, oh, yeah. I was in early days in grad school. So yeah. I was learning. I was a marine biology major dipping her toes in horticulture. <laughs> I caught up, but we definitely had to add other soil amendments and go up. Yeah. We just went up yeah. after that break. What have you recently learned about horticulture and gardening? Recently, I've learned about leaving some bare soil in your home garden. When I was being raised in the Department of Horticulture, right, we always kept things high and tight and mulched and covered, and we didn't want our soil to dry out to desiccate so we would mulch it and even if we didn't have pine trees we might tuck pine needles all over and yet if we leave a little bit of bare soil especially in a south facing sunny pocket I didn't know the importance of that soil to bees bees that may nest there or bees that may take some of that soil and use it for other little places that that they're building nests so I think about how much I've, I've mulch and I mulch and I mulch and I use a lot of my own, my home garden leaves, but now I might leave a little, even a two foot by two foot spot in a warm place that some place that's warm all winter, a south facing little pocket, a little sunspot through the maple branches that the bees can have a little soil, soil grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> that they can go do what they need to do. I didn't know about that. I think about how much I've been gardening and cleaning up my garden, but maybe really impacting bees in negative ways. But some simple changes, some simple tweaks, and it's all good. Yeah, kind of like a little bee quarry there, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Mind their own, mind the soil. Mind um, soil. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have... In my garden, I have non-native plants and native plants of Georgia. I have turkey figs and muscadines. I have a sugar maple. I have gardenias, of course, because I'm a proper southern gardener. Hydrangeas, lots and lots of beautiful hydrangeas. But I also have native plants. I have wild quinine. I have world coreopsis, world like uh, spinning around with your skirt, like whirls around. I have uh, beard tongue, which provides little landing pads for bees. So I, I, I've got both of these. And I, I need to say to the world that yes, I know species, but it's my husband who is the amazing designer he's got an artist eye and he's so good at laying plants out because our garden is beautiful i will say it's because of patrick seska what did your garden teach you the last year that you're applying this year what did my garden teach me 
Oh, my garden taught me to slow down, look around, and that you don't have to be so high and tight and perfect, and that I am enough. My garden is beautiful. It does have weeds. <laughs> it does have some stems that need to be cut back that are laying over the path but it's doing remarkable things. And I too can slow down and not be perfect and be remarkable. And maybe if I slow down a little bit and immerse myself in each project a little deeper, I will do even better work. Conservation has felt like such a big lift and we've all been working so hard and we feel like we carry this time pressure. Sometimes we get a little frantic. We have more and more partners and colleagues, more and more students doing beautiful work with us, young colleagues that have come on, and I can slow down and share and dive deeper, and my garden teaches me this. What are your future plans for your garden? Ah, in our garden, Flux paniculata, I guess it's called, I think it's called garden Flux. It's a tall Flux. It is thriving. It is beautiful. It has taken over. (laughs) We let it go to seed. And now we've got too much. We started last year and we're doing it again this year. We are digging up a lot of our perennials and regrouping them into patches. Black-eyed Susans, you all gather up here. Echinaceas, let's have some big showy patches. You all gather up here. Coreopsis here. Our garden had spread by seed, which is the best. It's the best when plants start planting themselves. But we did notice we were losing some of the showy plants because we had so much tall flocks. But Heather Alley, my colleague at the Botanical Garden, is so excited that I have so much tall flock. So I'm going to dig it up and she's going to increase it and plant it up at the Mimsy Lanier Center and get them going. And we'll sell them to people or we will use them for restorations or give them to schools or do all the things. So they'll go to a good home. What plant are you in love with this week? Oh, I have to say I'm in love with Harry Rattleweed. It's true, but I've been in love with him for 25, 20, 30, 30 years. Harry Rattleweed is a Georgia endemic plant. So it's only known from Georgia and only in Hortense and Jessup, Georgia. So like a 10 mile strip. And it's the only place on the planet where it grows. It's a sun loving plant. It's a, a legume. It's a pea. It's a baptisia. It's fuzzy all over. Every, every part of it is fuzzy, fuzzy. It's so fuzzy, it looks silvery. And it has yellow pea flowers and these cute little pea pods. And it makes a tumbleweed. It'll tumble and scatter seeds. Super long-lived. It has roots that are 16 feet deep. But its populations are crashing in Georgia. They have been for the last 20 years. Our partners in the Georgia Plant Conservation Alliance have a recovery challenge grant from Fish and Wildlife Money, and we are replenishing our seed bank. So we're collecting seeds. We've got permission from private landowners to collect seeds, and those seeds are going to a couple places. They're going to a seed bank at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. They are going to the State Botanical Garden for propagation. We will be keeping populations in raised beds at a few sister botanic gardens. But here's the big good news for Harry Rattleweed. The state has acquired land working with private landowners and they have protected land for hairy rattleweed for the first time by the state. They're going to burn it and they're going to let it go to seed and these babies that we're growing from private lands we're going to be able to plant on that protected property. Harry's got a new protected home that's going to get management and it's an ark that's welcoming 
babies from all the private land populations. Just in case, just as emergency backup, they'll all be there together. It's probably going to take us 15 years to get that far, but we're in. Harry, he's adorable. Look him up. He's so fuzzy. How can you not love a fuzzy plant? <laughs> Would you like to wrap up with some final thoughts? Mm, Craig, thank you. I would like to issue an official invitation to everyone listening to this podcast to come visit the State Botanical Garden of Georgia. It is free. It is your garden. The parking is free. We are open all the days of the year. You can check our website. There are certain days that we're closed, but muchly we're open sunrise to sunset. We have natural areas. Just, just come walk and be amongst and learn and enjoy. It is a treasure for the state. Our children's garden, our formal gardens, they're all exceptional and our natural areas are too. There's a lot of invasive species management happening. You walk through our floodplain forest and you don't see privet. It's amazing to see the difference. So come see, come visit, we would love that. And come often, raise your kids there, spend time with your sweethearts your loves, walk the trails, enjoy, maybe take a class. The classes are great. Jennifer, tell us how people might connect with you. Easiest way to connect with me is through email. On our website at the State Botanical Garden, we have staff addresses, but it's my name, jseska, J-C-E-S-K-A, at U-G-A dot E-D-U. This has been episode 79, How Your Garden Supports Plant Conservation with Jennifer Seska. Thank you, Jennifer. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.